0: Welcome, welcome to another the official podcast of The Leaky Cauldron. The Leaky
1: Cauldron. The Leaky Cauldron. The Leaky Cauldron. Do you hear that, urn? The Leaky Cauldron. Just go! You're wasting time! Welcome to Pottercast, your number one source for news, theories, discussion and interviews with people from the Potter books and films. I know a small amount myself having written the books. My name is J.K. Rowling. I am now happy to introduce your hosts, Melissa, John and Frank. Welcome to Podcast number 237. Seven two
2: thirty-seven. Seven. I say that
1: number every time. Like it's such a shock. We have a blast from the past here this week on Pottercast. What? Blast from the past on Pottercast. Who is that? I don't know. You guys are gonna have to tell me. Bonnie wait, Wright. Let's just, wait, wait, let's let's, let's let's give everybody in the audience a chance to figure Dickens. it out. So why don't we say hello to our mystery guest? Our mystery guest is a, is <laughs> sorry, just had a flash to the dating show. Our mystery guest is a thirty-something editor in New York City. She likes to pore over manuscripts late into the night, take long runs around Prospect Park in Brooklyn.
2: <laughs> and spell her name with so an obscene amount of T's.
1: Obscene amount of teas. <laughs> Say hello, it. mystery guest. Hello. It's so nice to be back here on Pottercast. <gasps>
0: yes, it's oh. Cheryl.
3: Yes.
0: Oh, it is Cheryl, after all. She's all right. Hello.
1: Front. Anyway, Cheryl Klein, our, our trusty... Potter expert and editor is here with us uh, talking about her very first book
4: it's true it's true
2: (laughs) 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 melissa's not lying it's true
1: (laughs) cheryl has written a book and it's called second sight and it's fabulous and anybody who wants to write any words down ever should own a copy
0: yes
4: it's required for you, know, like, knowing how to use grammar and things. You exactly. must access my book. Right. Is it going to teach exactly.
0: me finally how to use your and and your properly? No.
4: No, but I can give you a private lesson later if you
0: <laughs> like. <laughs> Many have tried. Cheryl, for
1: the, love, for the love of all that is good, please do.
0: Aww.
1: <laughs> all right, oh, we there. have a packed podcast coming up. We're going to talk with Cheryl about her book. We're going to do another chunk, bah, chunk. Chum-ma-no. And uh, in, our, in, our, in our aim to get through the Deathly hollows
0: before... Before the movie comes out, we're going to get through the book. <laughs> All right, Bye. well, shall we, shall we go into some news, you guys? News. Yeah,
1: if you fit, we must.
0: Uh, because lately we're talking about Deathly house Part 2 and all the excitement leading up to it uh, Camp Spoil Me and Camp No Spoilers are, are you know, butting heads a lot lately um, <laughs> I- Entertainment Weekly has released a bunch of new pictures um, from Deathly House Part 2 and uh, we posted them on Leaky and they're pretty cool one of them includes uh, Harry at the Lestrange Vault
1: Lestrange, is that how you say it?
0: that's how I say it
1: Charles, is that how you say it? I've always said Lestrange, but I, oh. I actually
4: anybody who could pronounce French would probably be better served. Lestrange. So, yeah, so I guess it's probably how would you say it in a French way?
2: Lestrange. Lestrange.
4: Lestrange. 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 Crack, are you
2: saying that with, for real or? Uh, yeah, I just work with a lot of French people because a lot of the a lot of the people I work with are French.
0: Oh. Oh, fancy. I just try to put like some coins in my mouth and then try to pronounce it, and then it comes out the way it does.
2: And that's not offensive. Lestrange. Strange. Strange. It, it sounds very strange when you say it. Well,
1: well, one of these pictures, it's like, we've sort of seen it. It's like that ride in Gringotts, you know? Um, <laughs> we've seen that picture like a bunch of times already, but there, there is a picture of Neville in his... In his he's holding the sword. Oh, man. He's holding the sword. That's like the end. It's like and look, so... there are... Okay, I'm so excited because look, there are all these people watching.
0: Yeah, everybody gets to watch Neville week. anyway.
1: Yeah, but from what we learned about last week, that all they are all watching. They might not be circled around Harry, but now they are all watching. I am. I take it back. I'm psyched.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's funny. It's funny you say that you take it back. I don't know if you've watched or seen any of the feedback to the last week's episode. I don't take back episode. my reaction.
1: People get a little bit too pissy. Oh my goodness!
0: <laughs> Did you see the comments on YouTube? <laughs>
1: I didn't see the comments on YouTube. now.
0: Oh no, people were people were calling for your assassination.
1: Wait, oh, guys, what? Because because we have bad reactions to the things that are changed, but this is like, are they new to podcast? This is what we do every time I we hear about the a lot changes. Scream. <laughs> what?
0: A lot of them must have been new because the, a lot of it was, "Who is this woman?" A. Who is this person? <laughs> and, and she should be shot. <laughs> B. <laughs> Nice. A lot this of is what that. we
1: do with every movie. We get angry about the changes. We take a minute. We buck ourselves up. We get ready. We watch the film and we come back screaming to the podcast about how awesome the movie is and yeah. don't worry about the changes. Like This happens every time. But as fans, this is what happens. you got to take a minute to like process.
2: Now, <laughs> what – okay, I didn't uh, – I didn't. I wasn't there for that show. So what were the major changes that upset
1: for- me for me, it's that Harry's not like like Harry doesn't seem apparently. Well, spoiler alert, by the way.
0: Oh no, random spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, uh, uh.
1: Um, apparently Harry, like Harry and Dumbledore, like tumble off the side of Hogwarts together or something. Dumbledore, oh Dumbledore, Voldemort. Sorry, my brain is shot. And <laughs> and like Harry, just he's he's dueling with Voldemort before he knows. Apparently knows that all the hawkers have been killed, and Hermione—it's Hermione's idea to jump on the dragon, which bothers me to no end. But oh. only in that, right, right, Cheryl? Um, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's part of you the pattern. know, it's part of the pattern, and that's you know, we're used to it. So there's just just a bunch of like, ah, I can't believe they did that. The only time I get really angry about a change is when it doesn't seem to serve making a better movie. I can accept it if it makes a better movie that's in line. It doesn't violate things about the books, like key things, character things yeah. about the books. You know, it's when you know you give something to Hermione when you've got the other two actors right there and there's absolutely no reason to give it to Hermione. That's what bothers me. Yeah, you know. So there's stuff like that, and then like like the scenes of Harry at the end. He doesn't seem to be like. The way he is in the book, which is the man and in control, and he knows what's going to happen, and he's the hero. He seems to be kind of fighting at the end there. Uh, a lot of people not.
0: are saying that if they would have just filmed it the way it was in the book, it would have been the most anticlimactic saga of all time.
1: I don't argue that. You can't film it word for word the way it happened in the book. But there but there was a real beauty to that that tenseness, that quiet, that that prowling each other. I'm sorry if a screenwriter can't turn that cinematic be- that means they just they, they don't have enough tools in their bag. If you can't turn something that's that's if you can't take the essential things that are beautiful about it and turn it into something that's cinematic and also remains true to what was special about it, yeah. then you've just made a different movie. And that's fine. It might be a great movie, but it's not the same. You well, know?
0: What do you think, Cheryl? Do you think that that it would have been possible to take that scene as it was written harry's final confrontation and killing voldemort into something that would have would have played well on screen and and it wouldn't have been like anticlimactic like people are saying it, it could be
4: well i think it's a bit premature perhaps to judge it anticlimactic when we haven't seen the movie yet yeah. <laughs> and we don't know exactly how it's going to play out and um or how it's paced in the movie or anything like that i mean i think certainly in the scene itself in the book. Um, it's an incredibly cinematic scene. Like, yeah, I was going to say. Like, the, way, the way that's holding you in, in its tension and in its um, – Tension. You know, the, the, way that, the way that Harry is like really pacing out that information of what he's saying to Voldemort, you know, that like you, you know this and you know this, but you didn't know this, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and really bringing it all together with the wands for both the reader and for Voldemort before striking the final blow.
1: I mean, um, we've seen in movies, right, a bunch of times that big denouement scene where the, the hero and the villain are like, like revealing these pieces of information to each other, and the way that Harry and Voldemort are pacing around each other and prowling, like you said, the tension. I, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. I do that. So, I mean, what were you gonna say? I, I
4: think it's, I, I think it's a l- awesome, awesome scene in the books, um, and I'll be curious to see how they do it on screen. I, I but I'm not going to. Say anything one way or the other until I've seen the movie. Yeah,
1: so diplomatic. Because
4: <laughs> well, and also you know, like I, um, the media always, yeah, are interested in in sh- in showing what's different. You know, like trying to get news out of the stories, and so like highlighting the differences is a way to do that. But sometimes they don't always get things right either. So yeah. I think the proof is going to be the pudding.
3: <laughs>
1: I mean, and that that's the other thing, like. We haven't seen the film and we prefaced all that with like, you know, we haven't seen it. We said a bunch of times during the podcast, like, look, we know we're going to see the film and love it. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. You know, we know it. So like everybody just just chill out. Yeah. You know, they just want us to like. Love it without seeing it. and We don't love it without seeing we don't hate it without seeing it, but there are certain things that are causing frustration. I don't know. All
2: right. What it? I'm still like basically like the the last bat like at the end. It's different.
1: Yeah, it's the battle stuff. There was other stuff I can't remember <laughs> now.
2: It's just the um, battle, or like oh, the final Fred.
1: Fred. We don't see Fred's death. It doesn't happen. Like it happens. You see him dead later, but you don't. It's there's nothing. It Percy on screen. No, and Percy's storyline doesn't exist. And um, I can see the some Percy other stuff. Thing.
2: Like I can see the Percy thing, whatever. Um,
1: Especially in line of the fact that they ignored it in the other films too.
4: Yeah, yeah there's only so much time.
2: Yeah, Fred. I um, mean, Fred. Though I would—that's a bummer. You don't
1: see that. It is a bummer, right?
4: Well, I wonder if they maybe. I mean, I'll be interested to see if they replace that with other things, because, like, like suppose yeah. they show actual like the death of Lupin like and Tonks Lupin and or Tonks, something. Yeah. Like not the two. Huh. huh? so you just like see
1: the corpses or? Are...
0: apparently the only time that you see Lupin at the end is uh, in the forest again when he's like a ghosty Lupin
1: mm. yeah it's like oh Lupin you're dead <laughs>
4: I'm already <laughs> feeling sad for the scene yeah yeah. So that already my... <laughs> yeah
1: that was my that was my oh yeah, yeah forget the same
2: actors yeah. And, uh the same actors for uh, Lillian and I um... hope is.
1: Maybe I don't know because I
2: saw like a trailer or something, and it looked like the same actress from like three and you know, going Harry, you, you know it, or this first one. I don't know, like when the the flashback, it looked like the same actress. So I'd be curious if it was, we, we or and not. the one from book four and the movie yeah. four when they came out of the wand.
0: What I don't understand is why they included Hayden Christensen in that. Like they oh, should have just used they should have just used the original actor. <laughs>
1: You're so, you're horrible. Do you know that? You're just a terrible person.
0: I just, I don't think they should have changed that, is all.
1: Uh, Geraldine Somerville is Lily Potter in this movie, and she is the one from way back. So, yes, I believe that it is the same. Uh, she's in Deathly Hell, she's in Order of the Phoenix, she's in Goblet of Fire, she's in Azkaban, she's in Chamber. She's, yes, it is the same Lily in all of them. Yay for continuity. Yeah. I know Cheryl would like that.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> all right, we have to get ourselves back in on, on track Let's here. Uh, we have uh, our our next news article talks about um the first we've heard of something called the Deathly Hollows do- documentary.
1: Yeah, this looks cool. I'm what in the world
0: that. is this all about? Melissa, do you know anything about this?
1: Yeah, apparently they, they got a fi- this filmmaker, he's he's won some awards apparently. His name is Morgan Matthews, he's a British filmmaker. And he was given complete, quote unquote, complete access to the set, crews, actors, uh, on death on the making of Deathly Hollows Part Two. Um, they say that it's quote unquote not pure gloss. So it's going to talk about the challenges of the film, the toll it takes on the actors and such. It's not just, hey, look, Emma Watson, she's pretty. Hey, look, Rupert Grint, he's cute. You know, it's not going to, you know, and they and they tell funny stories to each other. That's not that's not apparently what this is going to be i wonder what they mean when they say tolls like are we gonna have somebody gonna have a breakdown like what what do they mean you know,
3: know. maybe what people snapping
4: at each other or something because yeah. they're under stress or
3: yeah, yeah.
4: sort of reality stri- <laughs> like imagine it'll be kind of like you know making top chef or something like that you know you're trying to produce a really quality product in a limited amount of time and
0: yeah and,
4: and with a lot of a lot of cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> and uh-huh. you could, and you could, so you could uh, see those sort of arguments, whatever.
1: Also, something interesting here is that um, they, they talk about that there was a crew filming behind the scenes for the production, but it was for, on all the films. So they have material on all 10 years of filming they did. Yeah. I mean, my God, you know, what they yeah. must have in those cans.
0: What are they going to really do with cool. all that?
1: I know, right? What are they going to do with all of it? Nothing. You're gonna gonna mean, they're going to make watch, this documentary.
0: You're going to watch all these kids growing up, like, f- and and their behind-the-scenes footage, like, right in front of your eyes, like, all in one little movie. Yeah. I'm uh. so glad
1: they're doing this. It's it'll be interesting to program. see how
4: it's released. Like, whether they'll put it on TV or in films or what.
0: I wonder if it'll be part out? of the DVD. Maybe it'll come or out on DVD. DVD similar... You know, in the and timeline to When Deadly House part two were weird. What's
1: our next news ar- news article?
0: Our next news article is speaking of all of these um uh changes, um uh our, our favorite Potter producers, um, Mr. Heyman um and uh and Mr. Barron were chatting about some of the changes that were made um in the film and uh their their response to those things. And um, I think we should probably cut around a little bit with the editing here, so we can push our our chat about the changes we just did um, to, to this point in the show.
3: Okay.
2: Is that available to listen about. to or no? Uh, what
4: it said it can be heard and read in its entirety here. Yeah, on the, on the page. <coughs> so yeah.
1: Ah. Oh, I should I
0: listened to it, that. Dang it! It's in your it's in your emails, doodle. I didn't read the news.
1: Have you listened to it, John?
0: I've not not the whole thing. I've just read the the thing. We can actually we can play a little clip of it if we can listen to it. Then we can play a little clip of it.
1: Yeah. So yeah, they talk about um, the differences. Differences that they made the scene of uh, Snape and McGonagall. They face off. um,
2: They do face off. Yeah. Good. I was. That
1: makes uh, me. Yeah, that makes me really happy that they do it. You know. Um, Yeah. yeah. It's in the Great Hall, actually. Where they Snape. Where they where they where they Snape off? I just said where they Snape
0: off. (laughs) Um, they were uh, they were saying that they cut things that they considered to be juvenile, like the the, the desks charging through Hogwarts and beating up Death Eaters, and they said that okay. um, Peter Pettigrew strangling himself um, was also cut for the same reason that that would have been juvenile. I don't buy that even a little. How, is, he was how a, is that juvenile?
1: That's not juvenile at all. Like I can understand how the mecha- like the mechanic. Somebody choking themselves—it it would be a hard play. It'd be a difficult thing to show that without it being weird and comical, you know. But yeah. that's—you know—that's why they get paid lots and lots. But he's of He's a great
2: actor. But, and just do, do it off hard. camera if you're worried about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 So now Pettigrew is in the final scene, which just really—I mean, God—does anybody really care that Pettigrew is in the final scene? Like, not really. But it just—it just takes again away one of those layers of of meaning in the story yeah.
0: you know what, what if it was what, what, what if it was this guy's just really good agent that said all right you can have timothy here for deathly hollows but we have to pay him for both movies so he has to be in the second one too and they're like god darn it he gets killed in the first one like, well don't kill him then bring him back for the battle and they're like oh okay. really? I don't think that is what happens. She's a at really, all. really good agent is what it is.
1: That would be an amazing agent. <laughs> <laughs> Ten years of debate about not about staying true to to, to the characters, yeah. uh, but Peter Pettigrew's agent got out, them to change yeah. the plot
0: out the window for Mister. <laughs> out Strall. the window, yeah. gone.
4: Well, you I know, mean, if he is in the forest scene, it'll be interesting to see if they bring back any of that justice theme. Then mm-hmm. that he's trying to like help Harry again. Or something
2: hmm. that be that is a good point that 's interesting,
1: yeah, D- yeah uh, I, mean, does... those things, I can understand why it might seem comical that the desks were charging, but there 's a reason that it seems comical it 's because the right tone wasn 't established in the very beginning, and I love these movies, but they 're not i i 've always felt the tone was not the same as the books because there isn 't that winking charm, funny kind of subtle. And if that had been present since the beginning, then it wouldn't seem odd at all that a bunch of desks were, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah. we're so quiet. Nobody wants to be what the mean. Is- well, I mean, I just,
2: I, I feel out of the loop because I didn't, I, I didn't, I couldn't download that episode onto my phone the other day. And I wasn't, I was at work. So I didn't have iTunes. So I was, I was one we well, couldn't listen to it. And so I was mm-hmm. curious what was taken out and all that kind of fun stuff. So,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, if any of you guys haven't heard our previous episode, it is on YouTube in its entirety. And um, if you're a regular li- listener of the show, we would encourage you to go check that out and maybe um, clue in some of the non not-so-regular re- listeners of the show who have commented uh, a little bit about what this is about. Cause
1: I don't... I,
0: whatever. I mean, I don't want, I I don't want Melissa bust. to get all this... Uh,
1: I'm real. Well, listen, <laughs> listen. If eight. I had a thin skin, I'd have... I'd have
0: h b uh, two five seven eight says, okay, whoever this girl is, she needs to get <laughs> over herself. any real fan of the books needs to separate <laughs> the books from the films. you will never be happy with anything if you don't create a separation what a uh, b word
1: what's hilarious about that is that you you absolutely then have people on the other side going any real fan of the books wouldn't stay wouldn't wouldn't like a movie that changed da, 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 da. you know so so whatever so when you have people on both sides you, you can't you can't make up, you can't make up your mind based based on that.
3: Yeah,
4: but and anybody who's trying to declare a real fan is just trying to get on a power trip, anyway.
1: Yeah, that's I Yeah, mean, have to declare yeah. a real fan. Mm-hmm. Fans are yeah. people who love something. That's all that matters. Yeah, I either to mine, and everybody should
0: just shut up. Yeah. <laughs> shut it? <Yeah. laughs> I'm
1: sure that'll make them very happy
0: to hear me say that. But whatever. Um, shall we talk a little bit more about Deathly Hollows the book and a little chunk of it at a time here, guys? Yeah, that
2: sounds good. Yeah, yeah.
0: we're gonna go. We're gonna go ahead and talk at first. I thought about... you were
2: actually asking me a question, so I was confused why we wouldn't. And then I realized, oh, you're being facetious.
0: I'm being a little facetious. A word
2: I like to say a lot. It's
0: facetious. It's a Frankie word. For sh- facetious. 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 What does that mean, Cheryl? And, and is Frankie using it in proper context?
3: I
4: am. Facetious, it means um, silly, basically. You know, just being goofy, uh, making it's, fun, joking.
2: Yes. Yeah. So being facetious is joking around with the intent of being silly, and being sarcastic is joking around with the intent of being mean. So, really? The only distinction between being facetious and sarcasm, or sarcastic is intention.
0: Really? I didn't know that. Is, is he right, Cheryl? I mean, you've, been, you've been saying this for years.
4: Sarcasm but is a lo- bit harder edged, always.
2: Yeah. yeah. That, can you? It's. I don't know like that's, I cutting. read that somewhere, and I really like. Yeah, it's it's supposed to. It's intent. It has a, like you're you're being mean to it, mean with it. Mm. That's just my interpretation. We'll say of the of the distinction between the two. Let's not make it a blanket statement. Okie okay. doke. Anyway,
0: I'll allow it. <laughs> Let's continue. All right. So all
1: right, sorry, I just I my I'm sorry, I just checked out for a second. We're we ready to go to but what are we gonna talk about Cheryl's book?
0: Yeah, I'm we're saving that for, for, for the end. Yeah. So okay. so people are uh
1: Just making show.
0: So people are, are all like, Wow, that lady had some great contributions to the show and then they're <laughs> then they're really gonna want to hear about her book. Okay,
1: cool. So okay. no no show pressure, Cheryl.
0: Big contributions from you for this.
4: I will endeavor to perform. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Alright guys, we are here with the very next chapter of Deathly Hollows, the final hiding place. Oh boy. Alright. This is of course the place where Creature hides that last Horcrux at Grim Old Place. What John? Nope. Is that not right?
1: Are you just checking to see that we're like with you and
0: Yeah. yeah. And it's, is that it's, it? It's been a really long time since I've actually read the book. No, I'm joking. Better uh, be joking. Yeah. Okay, so well, this is following the Gringotts chapter where um, Hermione had the brilliant idea to steal the blind dragon, and uh, and get out of Gringotts, right, Melissa? <laughs> so glad Hermione had that idea. <laughs> All right, so, um, Charlotte, do you do you want to begin what happens in this chapter here? Oh, it has uh, here's Harry, Ron, and Hermione riding the dragon, right?
4: yeah um, so they've just had this amazing action sequence in Green They're just burst free and one of my favorite chapter endings of all time um, nice. and uh and then so now it's the aftermath where they're uh they're flying up to some safe space in I don't know what sounds like the lake district or something, a beautiful area in England um, and then they land by a lake. And they sort of take stock of where they are and what they have. And then uh, J.K. Rowling does one of her excellent um, Mm -hmm. cuts away. (laughs) Oh, I should say before I say anything more that I'm speaking solely as myself as a reader and fan here and not as a –
0: Not with your inside – And not with my
4: insight. And not like not with like any special insight, and certainly not on behalf of, of Scholastic or anything like that. Yeah. Well, um, can
1: I ask you? This is this is with this dragon scene. That's exactly what we're opening on this chapter here. Is what we all spent oh, I don't know, three months leading up to the release of the book talking about. There was rumors it was Draco. It was it was really the anti, <laughs> antipodean antipodian opal eye dragon. What was your reaction? I mean, because you knew. So what was the reaction to all the crazy theorizing you had about what the heck this dragon was? Way oh, back because
4: then. because you all knew what the dragon was based on the, the cover, the um, deluxe edition Art. cover, right? The deluxe edition yeah. cover, yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually the edition I'm holding in my hand right now. Um, oh, and so I mean, I mean, my reaction to theorizing was always, I'm afraid, a bit smug. <laughs> 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 um, I, I enjoyed hearing everybody's theories very much, um, and I. Uh, but because I had the book so firmly in my head, it was hard for me to, like, I, I, I'm afraid I don't actually remember many of the theories or whatever. Because cause I, cause I was mostly, I think I would hear theories and I would sort of judge them, like, for how close they got or not,
3: mm-hmm. you know? Um, same thing.
4: Yeah. So based on what I knew already. So that was how I, um, so I, I would listen to theories. and I'd just be like, uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and they go on from there. Yep. Sure. Sure.
0: All right. Okay. All right, so. So they're riding the dragon. It's actually fun the way have Cheryl here because um, I remember she was telling me about how they actually removed a scene where the kids uh-huh. were all like, hey, I can't believe we finally have a way to get around for a while. Like, let's get something to eat. So they drive the dragon through drive-through food and they grab some burgers and stuff and everybody was all frightened of the dragon. But they were able to um, to eat as they were riding, and it was it was a pretty comfortable. I mean, actually, spot. John,
4: I told you that it was raw meat that they t- they picked up because that's then right. they could just you know toast it on the dragon's breath as yes. they were flying.
0: They're very clever. You know, that's
4: like true drive fly through service. So. <laughs> yes. Being
1: pulled into his world of craziness. What's happening? <laughs> I should not go. And with they, like they
2: had this. a house elf right. steward. Yeah. Was all like- yeah. Right. Right. Going down the back to the right with a car.
1: And Hermione did it all on one hand and one foot.
0: Pretty yeah, much. Hermione, it, was it was all her,
2: Hermione's idea. It was all her, her it with plan. the
0: plan. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but I mean, what I
4: really love about this chapter is, is it's just like in setting and in atmosphere and everything about it, it's just such a sort of relaxing scene compared to like the previous chapter like (laughs) all the tension of their escaping from Green Gringotts and now and being in a city and being in this enclosed space and now they're flying in this lovely um you know over this lovely countryside and it's still tense you know but um but it's a chance for all of us to sort of take a breath before the big before you get dive into the battle at Hogwarts
1: again. And there's that great laughter, that great release yes. of energy. But it's like she knew we needed yes. that moment. Exactly. You know? Also, yeah. like, it's such a it's such a nice reminder of their friendship one and mm-hmm. a, a breath, like you said before. And, and it sort of takes you back to when this was all kind of fun, exciting kids play that they got to be part of. And you, you forget that, it's, that there's a, you know, this is for real life or death. There's a war being waged. It sort of takes them back to like... God, we're we're these kids and we're and we're doing these amazing things. it just has yeah. a has a nice like juvenilia to it. I can't put my finger quite on what, what I mean, but there you go.
4: Yeah. Okay.
0: So Trio plus Dragon riding around. They're holding on for dear life. They eventually jump off, they go splishy splash in some in the lake, and they set up camp. Uh, and um they start to think about uh the fact that now they they have a horcrux, they no longer have their their way to destroy it. They lost the sword, and they're pissed so about the goblin turning on them.
1: It's like trying to hold water in your hands. They just keep losing bits as they go.
2: I can't like. You can't blame the goblin to a certain degree because it's like whatever mm-hmm. you were going to do that to him, so like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm saying. I'm just saying. I mean, like, he
0: would have had to have been the most enlightened goblin in the whole goblin world. Like to we put said last time, like, What above. he did
2: already was a big deal. Yeah, like he <laughs> helped them break in.
0: I don't. It's a goblin's way to put the goblin world and its beliefs above the wizards. I'm so. sorry.
1: He's. I'm
0: not saying
2: it's right. I'm saying. No, I'm
1: not saying it's. It's. I'm not saying that he. That I think that. I'm not saying that I disagree with you in that way. I'm saying he's stupid Yeah. because he's <laughs> he's witnessing he's witnessing what's happening to his race, and he's helping them defeat the only hope for this to stop ha- stop happening by handing Harry Potter over to the Death Eaters. Like, no, this is a very stupid one.
0: Do you think he, under- he understands the real importance of Harry? I think that you'd have to be really stupid.
1: I think you'd have to be really, really stupid not to think. Harry Potter gets handed over over to Death Eaters, equals Voldemort, equal, has more power, equals my race getting treated even worse than they're treated now. Like, you know, like, these are basic facts about what they have of their life right then, you know? I don't know. Yeah, that's true. I can see how he was blinded by his upbringing and his culture whatever and all that stuff. But I think that um, no one's going to give him any, you know, IQ awards <laughs> for what he did there.
2: <laughs> IQ awards, I was like this.
1: One. For goblins, they do.
2: Oh, good. Touché.
1: What do you think about the whole treachery, Cheryl? Of I think Rip it's
4: – I mean, actually, I was listening to a talk and I was thinking about um, – this is a random comparison, but I was thinking about the Elgin marbles, which are these beautiful um, marble statues in the British Museum in London. And um, they were taken from Greece in like the early 1800s or late 1700s, something like that, to Britain. And Greece has several times sued to have them back. Because, you know, they were taken from them as their cultural property and so on. And Britain has kept them saying that, I mean, I haven't been following the debate recently, but... Um, but last I heard, like, Britain says, well, you know, we haven't the British Museum here. We get millions of tourists. It belongs, you know, it's it's for the greater cultural growth of the world. And and whereas the Greeks are like, no, it's actually our stuff and part of our heritage and everything.
3: Right. Oh, no. And I think
4: that's sort of analogous in the sense that, like, you know, the, Very much the so. goblins feel that, like, the, the sword is part of their culture. It's something that they need to maintain the strength of their people and so on. And so they deserve to have it. And, um. I, I mean, I can see your point that it's a little bit short-sighted compared to, like, letting Harry... A uh, bit. But, but yeah. at the same time, they don't know that Harry's going to succeed. I mean, Griphook is pretty skeptical about the whole business
1: right but okay if the entire culture of greece was endangered by
3: this
1: (laughs) this huge huge threat and and it was common knowledge in their world that there's this one person (laughs) who stands a chance at beating this threat don't you think the culture of greece or the country of greece or whatever of greece would be really stupid to say the way in which we're going to get our stuff back is to hand this guy over but they're not handing him over they're, Isn't not giving, they're not delivering Harry to the Death Eaters. They're just... Oh, they're just trapped no. in a dungeon. They're just trapped in a dungeon with oncoming Death Eaters. And yeah, but says, I mean, the sword they're, they're is not there. going to
4: necessarily help them out. I mean, cool, it's good to have a sword. But when you have three people and a whole army versus a whole army of Death Eaters, the sword is not going to make that big a difference in that battle.
1: Right. It's not the sword. It's the fact that Griphook runs out of, runs out of the dungeon screaming that the thieves are over there with the oncoming goblins and Death Eaters to get them. You know what I mean? It's the manner in which he does it. But, but at that point he's among goblins. Hmm. Well may, maybe he wouldn't have done, maybe he wouldn't have done this if they weren't already kind of cooked. You know, maybe he like made yeah. a quick appraisal, appraisal of the situation and was like screw it, I'm taking the sword and I'm running. Yeah. That I could, yeah, that I, I, think could,
4: that, I mean that's the way I read the scene. Okay. That they were like, you know, I I've, I've got to get what I can out of this situation since and um and I'm yeah. going to grab my cultural property while I can. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's exactly how it the form that is set to. And I'm going to grab my cultural property while I can. <laughs>
3: That's what goes through his head, I'm sure. Yeah.
2: The exact words.
0: Yes. Oh.
2: There is something I really enjoy about the whole goblin culture about how I love the concept of how they make it for the person. And then when that person's dead, we made it for them. They paid for it. So now Goes back to us because we made it. That's really interesting to me. I really liked yeah. that whole cultural difference that she painted into them.
1: It's also super convenient. It's super. It's super. It's super um, um, capitalist because when somebody dies, they have a chance to make more money on that which they created because they have to, they reclaim it. You know, well, that's it's right. Like in line very, with who the goblins are. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But it's, it's very. Yeah. Uh, it's convenient for profit margins.
2: See, yeah. in my head, it, it's kind of like being an artist. Like as if I painted a picture for somebody. They paid for it, and when they're dead, it's like, "Well, I made this. This is my artwork. I poured my my, my talent and time into it. I want it back." And so, like, it's just interesting because I didn't see, I didn't really see it from that point of view. I just I put it from like it's their craftsmanship. They poured, you know, it's their talent that built this. They want it back. But I guess it is the money thing is very true too. It's funny.
0: Well, well, Voldemort manages to deal a blow back at the goblins for the sake of wizard kind because um, he basically knocks out the goblin that comes to tell him about the Lestrange break-in. Well, it doesn't knock him out. Yeah. I think he kills him. Yeah, well, yeah. he knocks okay. him off.
1: That scene kind of confused me when I first read it. Like, if Voldemort was intent on killing everybody at Malfoy Manor, how anybody got out, you know, is what that do you mean?
2: I Well, I mean, I think they realized it wasn't like, I'm going to kill everybody. It's just everyone's like, oh, crap, get out of the way. And he's just yeah. at, like, it's like, he's he's throwing dishes. it's like throwing dishes, you know, like you can stand there and let someone throw a dish at you. Or you can run out of the room and he's still yeah. going to throw that dish.
0: Well, so answer it, like, me this. Temper tantrum. Curious yeah, off exactly. topic, curious off topic question, but answer me this. If every single Death Eater of, okay, of, of his senior staff, right? The people that came and meet at the table in the beginning of the, of the book, if they were to all, all at once start attacking Voldemort, mm-hmm. would they win? I don't. Or would I, I would he kill every they, single the one the of
2: them. The Dark Mark would have some sort of defense against that. Mm. The fact that they have that's interesting. they've willingly put the Dark Mark on them and like Voldemort has power over it. I would imagine that would have some sort of like protection for Voldemort or at least it would poison um So
4: like so like Voldemort would have installed like a cyanide pill <laughs> yeah, in would, their, like, and on their arms. Yeah.
2: The like, I, I
1: wouldn't that, I
0: mean, put it past that at all. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's Well, true.
0: he he did it for the hand.
1: He did it for yeah, the hand, exactly. but doesn't but, but but hang on, because Draco has a dark mark. And Draco doesn't rec- like quote unquote doesn't recognize Harry. So it doesn't no, but I mean
2: a, like an overt attack on him. Like if oh, okay, he, can, he yes. can activate like attack.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> do that again? <laughs> Hurrah attack. <Shut>
0: up. <laughs> oh, maybe, that could, maybe there's like a spell that, that he can like like target any particular one Death Eater and kill them. With but a do you thought. know
1: of, do we know of any former Death Eater raising a wand of Voldemort?
2: No, but then but we do see, like, the deserters. But they all end That's- up dying, but they didn't, like,
0: die immediately. What about um, the other black brother? Was he a death Regulus eater? Regulus
1: never, never dueled with him. No, yeah. Regulus died in the, in the lake. Yeah. So yeah, he wrote a letter.
0: How far yeah, do you, you think tough. Snape would get in a one-on-one duel with Voldemort?
1: I think he'd get pretty far cause, because of his occlumency. Yeah.
0: I just, yeah. I, I always wonder, like, the idea of, like, how many fully trained wizards does it take to be fighting combined to be a match for Voldemort? Because we saw McGonagall do it with... Um, who were who the two others she was fighting? Horace and Kingsley. Yeah,
1: Slughorn and Kingsley. Actually, they were... I mean, none of them got killed, right? So... Yeah. They lasted a few seconds, a few minutes, whatever.
0: So, like, if three and three Dumble wizards her. are, like, his match, then why haven't they just tried to organize, like, like a ten-person strike on him all at once?
2: Well, I mean, it's, like, Voldemort's key... Like, strategy is just, like, he's avoiding. He has other people do his dirty work. Like, yeah, you don't get close yeah. to Voldemort unless he
1: get, wants you to. That's true. Yeah.
2: And then, like, Voldemort, I mean, Dumbledore is able to attack him. And even when Harry fought him, Dumb- like, what I like about it is, like, Harry didn't shed his blood. Like, Voldemort, like, had, his, it, had it was his own decisions and yeah. pride that killed him. Isn't it so funny? He him. Yeah, he defeated Harry him. doesn't
1: even attack him when he is expected for the fate of the
0: world to attack him. He doesn't. He doesn't expel the
2: It was such a great tie-in from the, the beginning of the movie at uh, the beginning of the book.
0: Okay, um, what, what's 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 going on next?
1: Uh, well, they have the, their nice little moment by the lake where they Ron says that immortal. You know, I don't know if you've you know, I don't know if you anybody will notice, but we did just break into Gringotts. You know, um, and the, like the ridiculousness of the bigness of what they're doing kind of hits them, and they they laugh. Yeah, but, yeah it's one of the. Yeah, it's, it's such a great. From a from a standpoint of J.K. Rowling as a writer, it's such a great thing to remember to do, to have them recognize that this is all ludicrous, what's going on. And they just broke out of a bank on a dragon, and they're in the middle of nowhere, you know.
2: And having but it then, come from, like, Ron, too, of all people, like, it just it, – it's even more – like, that character is built to be able to say something like that and even carry such a more kind of, like, heavy but – like humorous weight to it.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I guess truth
2: the, to it.
4: One of the things I appreciate about this scene, or about the series as a whole even, is um, you know, writers, especially ones with complicated plots, have, often have a difficult time getting all the information they need into uh, a book. And JK, and J.K. Rowling has set up a number of different devices throughout the, throughout the series that give her the ability to to cut away to other characters Cut away to other times You know there's the pensieve that allows them to go back in time To various people's memories mm. And now there's all of these ways that Harry can see Into uh, Voldemort's head This connection between the two of them And here that really does an essential thing Which is that it tells them they have to go to Hogwarts You know they've been wandering for so long And because Harry sees Voldemort At this moment he's like The, la- the last Hogwarts He alone knew where in Hogwarts he had stowed the Horcrux and so yeah. that tells Harry, like, okay, this is what we've got to do next. After all this wandering, here's where we're going. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: And it's not, like, because she built it in and it's been part of the culture of the story, yeah. it's not, like, out of, like, and then, like, someone just breaks the fourth wall. Like, hey, why don't you go here? Like, yeah. Uh, you, know, it's yeah. Just, you don't even challenge that. You're just, like, okay, we go. And you're excited because it's just so organic and ingrained.
4: And and, and you, you know, we've been having these little flashes all throughout the book, and it's been well established in the two characters' connection and everything like that. So she keeps finding these wonderful devices that both work for her plot and work for her as a fiction writer.
2: Yeah, and even the character development too, because like, at one point in this one, when Harry starts to like realize the value of the connection and using it, and when Hermione challenges him on, he's like, "No, I need this. This is something. This is going to get us." And kind of like puts Hermione in her place. I don't know if it was at this point in particular. It happens at some point in the book. And it was just like, and I, I really like that because it shows Harry growing up and realizing, you know what? I can't stop this so I might as well use this and this is going to help us and it does help.
4: Hermione is like, we must make a plan at the end of the chapter. You know, we must figure out what we're going to do. And Harry's like, we're Gryffindors, let's go with
3: it. <laughs> you know,
4: and then action sequence number two. or, or Not quite.
1: Yeah, I mean, I it's that. now, now the clock is, literally started to take it it, it. it is how long it's going to take Voldemort to check the other ones. That That's how much time they have. And they have no idea about two of the other Horcruxes two, the cup and the tiara No, how they're going to destroy the cup and how they're going to get and find what the other Horcrux even is. Yeah. So talk about like, you know, those beautiful insurmountable odds that make victory all the better when it happens, you know? Yeah.
4: One thing, I mean, I guess they'll have to do this in the movie. I'll be interested to see it. Um, I always sort of marvel at the fact that this, this day that they're going through begins at Shell Cottage before they break into Gringotts. Yeah. And then they go, <laughs> and it ends tomorrow morning, like after the battle at the Great Hall. Like it's just 24 hours of straight, like we are going non-stop. to break into it. Yeah, nonstop action and so on. And um, I'll be interested to see how they time that out in the film, I guess.
1: I'm curious if the film is going to be one full day like if if any yeah. time will, will will pass between and I and and I totally believe this I in a plotting way for 7 I think this was less believable than the way they are probably going to do it in the movie which is that they that that they talk to Gring. they talk to uh what's his name uh Ollivander and Griphook at Shell Cottage immediately and they hatch a plan and go. It's not that they spend weeks making up a plan which was had a lot of holes you know in their <laughs> logic you know like oh we'll dress up as bellatrix wait a second we know what's happened you know wait a second they're gonna be watching for bellatrix they're gonna know her wand's been stolen like nobody thought of this after weeks you know um so yeah i can That's totally see the they do they do do the best they can but you can you can it's one of the That's it's terrible. one of the rare moments for Portia. but it's it's one of the rare moments where you can see that passage of time needed to happen you know to make the story make sense. And I think in the movie, they're probably just going to dispense with all that and be like, right, Dobby's dead. Okay, talk to Griphook, talk to Ollivander, get some Bellatrix hair, go. You know? Maybe I'm wrong, but...
0: All right, well, is that the end of our little Chunk and Chunk guys here?
1: I think it is. I think they're yeah. about to get a little bit of Hogsmeade, and that's
2: it. Oh, that's hog- Hogsmeade's going to be fun when they get in there, and the goat, and...
0: Uh... Well, well, we'll see y'all next time we, g- uh, we go Chunk by Chunk. Uh, future episode of Pottercast. Hello. So now what, gang? Is it time to talk about the hot, hot? Is this hot Cheryl's corner here? Yes.
1: All right. So um, we're so we're we're very so excited, very so excited to have Cheryl on the show today because well, first of all, it's Cheryl's third uh, visit to Pottercast. We determined before uh, before we started it's going. It's
2: the turn of the Cheryl versus what was the other one?
1: Cheryl strikes. It's, it's, back. Cheryl
4: strikes back. Oh yes. Good. Okay.
1: Yes. It's Return of the Cheryl. A little bit of Pottercast trivia. Cheryl's first appearance on Pottercast contains the famous pants contest, in which you had to replace one word of the Harry Potter books with pants, and we would pick the best one. And that led to Frack drawing a cartoon about this with the I can pants you now that famous and that meant that we met Frack because we remember him because he was so awesome and that is how Frack became a substitute when one of us was out and then became a permanent member of the show
2: so I have a debt to pay to Cheryl in gratitude I, I didn't will. realize that to this day that is like, honestly that is so cool <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I'm but glad Ch- to be of you and Cheryl has written well, – well, over time, has written um, this wonderful book that she's put together called, a, called Second Sight, an editor's talk on writing, revising, and publishing books for children and young adults, drawing on her many years of experience as an editor at Arthur A. Levine Books, editing a, you know not just Harry Potter. Um, she served, has served as a continuity editor for Harry Potter in the last few books. Cheryl has been the editor of many wonderful and award winning acclaimed books, including um, many beautiful books by Francisco X, Stor- X. Stork. Can I say that right? Francisco yep. X. The Francis. X is difficult. Um, Lisa Yi, Elizabeth Bunce. Um, who wrote uh, Morabito? There's
4: uh, uh, no Uehashi. He's a great yeah, person. I was, I was
1: never, <laughs> never asked that one. Um, but she's a fabulous and esteemed editor, and her, her talks, if you've ever seen Cheryl talk, um, put it this way, you've never, you'll never, you never have met somebody who has seen Cheryl talk and not come away feeling like they've really um, um, learned something about the craft. And this book is full of good advice and analysis of how to make your, your, your book better, how to write better, how to understand story, plot, character, structure, and all these wonderful things. And so... Yes, Cheryl. Why don't you why don't you summarize it better than I just did? Because you are probably much more capable.
4: Well, um, that's a pretty good summary. Uh, for the past um, eight eight no seven years. Um, Besides my job as a editor, um, I've also gone out and given speeches to writers at various places around the country. Um, one of the largest writers' organizations in the world is the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Oh, yeah. Uh, with, uh, yeah, and they have chapters in like, not all 50 states, but pretty you close. Know, I've done quotes. contests with them. Yeah. and um, And so they're always looking for editors to come and give talks. And... I really enjoy writing talks, actually, because uh, it has helped me. Um, I, I just, you know, I'm an old English major. I really like thinking about plot and story and character and all that. And, it, and in, over and so over time, as I would be invited to various conferences, I would go and I would give these speeches. And so this is a collection of all of the speeches I've given at these various locations, just having fun thinking about these things. And then um, a the number of blog posts that I did on my blog at the same time where I would be um, going into the same issues a lot of the times. So, um, and, then, and then there's some additional material like on revising, like some practical techniques you can use if you're trying to revise a story or a picture book or something. So um, – so, yeah, I, I announced it in – that I was going to be doing it in July of 2009, and I actually crowdsourced the funding for it. Um that? I, I, well, I signed up for a website called kickstarter.com, which is really awesome for anyone who wants to do creative projects because you say, like, I'm go- I want to raise this much money to do this. And then um, – and in my case, I said I want to raise $2,000 to print 500 copies of a collection of my writing talks. And so I, I announced that, and then, um, and then anyone who wanted to support me could just go to this website and say, "Hey, I will give you fifty bucks or whatever it is." And um, if you did that, then you got certain rewards in return. And um, and I managed to raise that money in just nine days, actually, oh, which nice. was really like like thanks to my audience from like all the talks I'd given and my audience on my blog, and some very generous, wonderful people who contributed. And so, um, so I raised the money, and then um, I put it together over the course of the next year or so, and it came out this last March.
2: That's awesome! Yeah. I was going to ask you how you the self-publishing process. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, you know that Cheryl's process on this book inspired um, something I did with a, a charity fundraiser, which in turn inspired helping Haiti heal. Um, so you see, Cheryl, you, you keep having these indirect results. That benefit the Harry Potter fandom in huge ways.
4: My my web is wide.
3: <laughs> <laughs> my web is wide. And it, it's world. <laughs> across the world
1: yeah. Yes, yes. So, but it's so it's really interesting because you, I mean, you work in traditional publishing. You work for a, an imprint of one of the largest publishers in the known universe. And uh-huh.
4: no, universe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we are the largest modern. children's publisher in the world. I think. I'm pretty. Is sure. it really? scholastic is the largest children's publisher
4: Uh, exclusively for children
1: i think yeah i thought so but i wasn't i didn't want to yeah i don't want to make the bold statement cheryl i'll do it for my company do it for your company excellent um so why why go and i and i've I've seen you say since that if you had written fiction you wouldn't have gone self-published so why did you go self-published on this and why wouldn't you go if you if you were if this was a fiction novel
4: well i feel like with non-fiction um Well, to self-publish successfully, you need to be able to put together a quality-looking book and a quality volume, basically. And then you also need to be able to have a way to get it out to your intended readership. And I felt like because this is such a defined readership, you know, people who are interested in writing for children. And because I had my blog and my Twitter and and all the writing conferences that I continue to go to, um, I felt like I had a way to get it out there. And thanks to my experience as a person who makes books for a living, I felt I could put together that quality volume. So, um, so that's why—that's more or less why I decided to publish it myself. Um, it, it also felt like a slightly quirky project. Something that was more appropriate, perhaps, for self-publishing than hmm. than like for traditional publishing. I don't know. It's—it's um, it's been a whole interesting thing with like getting it into bookstores or doing the distribution, as opposed, you know, because most. Well, well, this goes into the question of like if it had been a novel, um, then I really would have wanted to go in a traditional publishing route, so I would have, so I could choose a good editor, you know, who I could work with, hopefully, um, who would help me make my work better. Like I feel like with nonfiction, I'm, I'm a pretty decent editor of my own stuff, but fiction is so much about the way that the reader relates to the emotion that you're bringing out in the text. That's really useful to have an editor to be reflecting that emotion back to you and saying, Mm -hmm. this is what you're accomplishing. And I wouldn't have been able to get that if I just done it all on my own Mm -hmm. self-publishing. And then, uh, and then novels like their, their readership is much less defined than like the readership of this particular book. Because, you know, like even reading, right. Publishing books for children, it can be like any kid from age 14 to 18, but you'll, your best, chance of reaching those kids age 14 to 18 for a YA novel is to get it into bookstores across the country. And Mm -hmm. so, and the people who can do that best right now are certainly traditional publishers. And so, um, and and that's true for adult fiction too, um, that there's been a lot of uh, traditional publishers are are best, I think, still at reaching that, um, that wide sort of amorphous mass of American fiction readers. Mm
0: -hmm. So,
4: so for fiction I would totally have gone self-publishing, and if I did a nonfiction book that had a less defined audience, then I might have gone self uh, traditional publishing. But um, for this, I was happy. It was fun to do it self-publishing. I like having control. Also, <laughs> <laughs> that yes. that factor cannot be denied.
1: So. You hear my knowing laughter.
4: Yes, I, yes.
1: One of my favorite things about this book is that um, you wrote at some point a picture book. Um, yes. To show, to show basically the 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 tent poles of picture bookdom, and it's hilarious. It's this very funny book, picture book about about um, um, baking cookies, and the funny thing about it is you see you see it's just it just reminds me of it's just so so committed to what you're doing. There's pictures of yourself in your apartment, like acting out the things in the in. The, the actions and making your own little picture book and it's just such a it's such a nice um clear way everything's very clear and it's a very um you know writing is such a it's, it's mystery meat you know yeah. and to get out of that process and have somebody say okay here's a b c d and e and here's how to make this big mess of thing that you've got on your word document better
4: I think a lot of what I do is sort of breaking down. Here are the principles, like the large principles of fiction that you need to be considering, like what is driving the stakes in your plot, or what is um, what what is really making your character attractive to the reader. You know, why did, why should a reader care about your character? Do you have that established? Because quite often readers know or writers know what makes their character attractive. Like, but that might happen later in the book, you know, like if you were yeah. writing a novel about Dudley Dursley's redemption or something, um, <laughs> and, and, and then you had Dudley at the beginning, like as he is like, say in year, in year five in Harry, but then we are, the real action of the book is going to be in Harry Potter year eight or nine, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, when you meet Harry, when you meet Dudley in year five, you'd be like, good grief. What a prat, you know?
0: Mm-hmm, um, yeah.
4: and so, and so, you, the writer, might be totally in love with him as he is in year nine, but you don't know – so you don't recognize that he's a Pratt at the beginning and that therefore readers won't necessarily care about him or want to stick around until they get to year nine. Right. Um, and that's one of the good things that an editor can do is sort of reflect that back to you. Um, the title, Second Sight, comes from, comes from this idea that, that editors often give writers a sort of second sight of their work. And, and that's what I hope this book can help people do is figure out how to get that second sight on their own.
1: Yeah, they say that writing is the thought is the art of the second thought. Yeah, and, uh, I think I and this is it's a nice thing to put on editing. Writing editing is the art of the the second sight. I like it. So yeah. if John comes to you with a novel, John's written a novel.
3: Yeah, okay.
1: What are the first things that you tell him to uh, look it over for? Get, keep an eye on how to make it better. Depending on, let's say it's 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 in good shape. It's not you know.
4: It's in good, sh- it's, it's it's, in it's good. good shape. It's in pretty good shape
0: for me. I mean, like, like it's my best shape. So, like, on average, it would be like like lower average shape for other folks. It's
1: something you're interested in publishing, but but you know, it's not quite there yet. Not quite there yet. What are the first things you tell somebody to do? And the way the reason I ask is that a lot of people who have written something want want to to just know how to improve it in general. So, yeah. this is where where do you start?
4: Well. This is one of the things that always makes publishing difficult is that is that books are like very much like people. And the same way that <laughs> advice cannot be universally applied to all people, mm. it can't be universally applied to all books. Um, mm. One of the things I always tell writers to do um, after they finish their manuscript is to take some time off from it to, um, to and then go back and reread it. Like take a few weeks off because like, when you finish reading it, you're super excited and you um, – and you, you know, you're like, oh, man, this is the greatest thing ever. But if you reread yeah. it a couple of weeks later, you're like, oh, actually, <laughs> boy, I didn't do what I thought I did there. So I often say, first take a few weeks off. Um, I often tell writers to write a letter to themselves after those couple weeks are up. Like sort of trying to set out their original vision for the book, what they wanted to do, um, and what they know they might still need to work on, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and. And what they really love about the book, what really excites them about the book. Because the revision process can be really long and hard. And so it's good to have those things in mind, like, you know, a strong sort of vision of what you wanted to do and also um, what, what makes you excited about it, why you wanted to do it in the first place. Hmm. And then the last thing I would say I always tell people to do is um, if you've written a novel, I always recommend going back and um, what I call book mapping it which is just sort of making an outline of everything that happens in each chapter. And then reading through that outline sort of for consistency and clarity and um, and coherence, you know, do things happen in the order they should happen? Are there events that you need to have happened and maybe don't, or events that don't happen and should, or I just said the same thing. <laughs> um, I'm editing myself as I talk. <laughs> um, so, so doing a book map sort of gives you a way to look at your book separate from the actual text of the book, and that, that can be really useful in getting, again, that second side of your work.
1: So I did that for, for Harry History once I, yeah. when, when I approached a draft. I made a giant – I called it a backwards outline because an outline – well, no, there were two. One was an outline – stating everything that I had written so that I can look at it in a very like sentence 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 way. And another was a backwards like timeline to like try and figure out what the hell was going on. Right. Um, It's very, yeah. It's very helpful. I'm I'm resistant to to, to outlines, Cheryl. And I remember your, your strictures on why they are wonderful. And so,
4: I mean, I know a lot of writers are resistant to outlines because they really feel they cramp their style. And I understand maybe not doing an outline before your first draft. I mean, if you, if, Right. If you can, if you can write away just like that, go for it. Um, but I think once you finish the first draft, it's really useful to go back and um, and make an outline to sort of take an inventory of what you've done and to see what is on the page versus what is in your head and so on. Yeah.
1: It reminds me of all those talks where J.K. Rowling talks about the 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 insane plotting that she was doing for Seven yeah. and the pieces of information she had. Giant charts where she would figure out, you know what pieces of information need to be imparted where. And when you see a finished book, it's oftentimes so hard to see, see it as something other than this fluffy bit of creativity. And it's hard to see that like math and organization might've gone in, gone into this, you know, well, that well. chart
4: that came out, I think it was an Easter egg on her side or something a couple of years ago yes. of, uh, of the book, you know, just a couple ch- chunk of book five, like, yeah. That that just that chart made me very happy
3: <laughs>
4: because <laughs> because cause it was it was so brilliantly organized and and so thorough at at like keeping track of all of the plot lines and things and um and and it just showed sort of what a master plotter she is and and a master writer too to be able to like okay what do I have for the Harry Ginny plot line in this in this scene what do I have for that you know
1: uh, yeah. I love that chart. <laughs> you talk about it with such affection, Cheryl it's uh, so uh,
4: I, I mean, it, as something that I think comes out in the book as, as well as probably the way I'm talking right now Is that I, I tend to be a very structure-oriented person And structure-focused mm-hmm. person And that's not because I don't believe in emotion Or fun or anything like that in books I, I believe that's all really important But I think that, um, that having an underlying plot structure An underlying skeleton is is really important also in fiction to sort of give you free reign to do all the other awesome stuff you know yes. because if it if it was just like all Ron Quips or something like that it wouldn't be it'd be fun but it wouldn't go anywhere you need to be able to balance both the Ron Quips and the and the Weasley twin jokes and all that sort of thing with mm. forward motion and emotional development
2: it makes all those other things have you know context and and
4: yeah. And meaning really as things exactly. add up as they go.
3: Yeah.
1: You talked about a little bit offline, we talked about hunger games and I wanted to to bring that conversation into the actual recording. We talked about, um, um, the hunger games being an almost, almost perfect example of, of a book being written to capture a reader. And can you
4: talk? Yeah. Um, the, the second, in the second half of my book, I analyze um, – I do this long series of talks where I talk about um, point, which is sort of my term for theme kind of, point, um, plot, character, and voice. And I analyze four different books in the course of that, um, a middle-grade novel, um, Marcello in the Real World, which is a book I edited, uh, The Hunger Games, and a book called Graceling. And um, – And I especially wanted to use The Hunger Games because I think it is just such a brilliant piece of narrative storytelling in terms of, um, like, everything in that book is built to make you care desperately about Katniss um, and to move quickly, I feel like, to sort of put her in the – to put you in in her headspace and to make you feel all the danger and things that she's experiencing. So – for instance the first chapter where she goes out and she's hunting with gail um like just very deftly suzanne collins weaves in all these little bits of backstory that are utterly believable about this place and the tessera and 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 how much she loves her sister prim and how katniss is the only person who um who is really supporting her family um there's this bit in the book where I talk about like the, the things that make you make readers care about characters and one of them is that they be sort of good people and one of them is putting the characters in jeopardy like making um, putting the characters in danger and, uh, and Katniss is and, and another one is making them good at something you know because you admire people who are good at things and so Katniss is a good hunter who loves her sister and, and readers tend to like characters who are liked by other people or who love other people have emotional Mm -hmm.
3: connections.
4: Um, so Katniss is a good character who's good at something, who loves her sister and is loved by her sister, who's clearly important to her family. And then you put her in the ultimate jeopardy by making her, (laughs) by making her have to go into the hunger games for other, like by performing that sacrifice. And then, um, and then from there, the novel, just like every single chapter has adds another bit to the plot, you know, um, about Peta, for instance, like the first time I think Katniss thinks about him, there's that flashback to when he burned the bread for her and got oh, beat up for her, kind of. And mm-hmm. again, that's something that, like, instantly you're like, okay, this guy sacrifices for other people. He likes Katniss. Um, almost every chapter ends on a cliffhanger. So you're, so you're constantly sort of driven forward. You're constantly like, what's going to happen next? I want to turn the page. And when I looked at... Um, at, at Susan Collins sentence structures, actually a lot of her sentence structures are sort of, um, front loaded in that same way that right. like, well, um, that, that like the action of the sentence will be, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm saying this right. Like she'll have like, but then when I look up, I see Thresh holding her in the air over me or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the action is the sentence is in the second half of the sentence. And so that pushes you forward. Huh. Oh, interesting. I, I don't know, like, like, and, and all of her writing is very tight and, you know, lots of action verbs, lots of – there's not there's not lots of – I mean, there's, there are pauses for reflection. But um, but there's not a lot of um, empty air or time to think. You know, it's all like keep going, keep going. Hmm. So – and then, and then, of course, the plot is just simply, you know – Survival or death, which is about the highest stakes plot you could possibly have.
1: Yeah, it's pretty intense. Yeah. And
3: even
2: even then, like, when they introduce the whole concept, like, she's not mad at the other tribute, she's mad at the capital. Right. It's, it's even a higher stake because she is completely woefully unequipped to even throw a stone in that direction.
1: Yeah, yeah and it's she's like and just cap- reluctant. She doesn't want to commit any acts that she's being forced to get. And she, do- she doesn't even commit – I mean, it, it's basically all accidental until near the end, isn't it? yeah and so she's basically better than everybody in that arena who's who's committing even though they have to they still well, she, are she
2: killed she killed the the tribute from the the 22. from she intentionally okay. killed the guy after rue he shot him, her in the neck
1: yeah the neck. right right yes, but it takes you know like it's such a low you know certainly lower than everybody else, most of it is just is just circumstance or you know she's she seems to be morally superior and i feel like that's the same thing with harry is that he is you know he 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 never turns his back on somebody who's about i mean draco in the room of requirement my god there's a war raging he has every this guy's tried to kill him so many times he's got every right to to just fly out of the room and they're risking their lives in the middle of fiendfire
2: oh i want to see fiendfire so bad i hope it's
1: there yeah so yeah but so does, yeah what does ron say something like if we die
4: trying to rescue
1: her? i'll kill you <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah
1: so classic ron that's great and it it's classic ron so yeah so cheryl i mean is it in bookstores where's the best place that people should get your book the best place
4: to buy it is uh you can buy it through my website um com. and uh if you go there there's a link to the second site page um which John designed for me. And, uh, Ooh. yes. Wow. And, um, and that lists all the options for where you can buy it. Cause there's Great. a number of them. So
1: we'll link it obviously in the show notes and on leaky and it's going to be posted on leaky, like very shortly about it. And so, yeah. So go get second Sight. It's if you want to learn how to write good, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> I people that write was a little, it. that was a little writer joke. Wink, wink. that's anyway. just how you talk. <laughs> Um, go check it out because Cheryl oh. is the
0: pump. Yeah, and thanks Cheryl for being on the show with us too. The pleasure.
1: I'm having a great time. Yeah. yeah.
0: Good stuff. Are we drumming it up? Yeah, we're drumming it, you guys. Boom, bada boom.
1: Hello, welcome to the drums.
0: Drum, drum everybody drum drum drum. drum. A drum. John, drum. you've been so
1: quiet during the
0: writing portion of the of the show. I would have never guessed. Well, I don't. I have not read Hunger Games, so <gasps> my my <gasps> apologies, to all of y'all. <laughs> Whatever. I'm re-listening
2: to them on my commute to work, and it's amazing. I've been drawing sketches that I'm going to... Oh, nice little segue that I can, I'm putting in my third volume of my sketchbook. If you guys want to buy one, go... Oh,
1: blah, 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 Frankie. Blah, blah. <laughs> I love the Frankie sketchbooks. I don't have a Frankie sketchbook. I just look at pictures of them and, and covet. <laughs> I'll give you one.
2: Um, well, actually, I don't have any of the first ones left, because the first ones are only 100. And the, uh, the second ones I've printed a bunch... And then this third one is only going to be a hundred as well. All signed and numbered with an original sketch on the cover. Bing. Um. Sorry, I have to. I, have them, no, okay.
4: Hey. As a person who did self-publishing, Frankie, where do you print them at, or how do you get? them? Mine them?
2: are extremely self-published because <laughs> I um I handle it all pretty much myself. I go by the paper and everything, and I get and I I get them print and bound and cut like it like a local printer. Uh-huh. And then I just um. The rest, I just kind of uh, I, I handle it like I just I do use InDesign to kind of format it and all that kind of fun stuff. Cool, so but I'm think I, I was curious to hear about you did that because I'm thinking of to putting a more of a professional one together, but more of this specifically because I do a lot of um, I always take like my notes during church, I like I'll, I'll draw and like I usually paint them later, so I was thinking about getting a bunch of those together and seeing how many I have and seeing if it's something I could look into getting done professionally, mm. but it's expensive. And so then I like, it's like self-publishing. My friend was talking about it and I respect your opinion a lot. So it was really, that was really interesting. So.
4: Yeah. I, um, I hired a professional book designer to do the interiors of my book because nice. if I'd had to design it, then it would have, it would still be going on.
3: <laughs> and, um,
4: and then I printed it with a company in Michigan.
1: So. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Cool. Cool? Ah. So I'm getting psyched for part two, guys.
0: How many days we got now? Like, are we still at the... Is it on Leaky? 90-day mark?
1: Well, I know by going to LeakyCon.com, which, by the way, is selling out like a crazy, crazy thing that sells out. Um... (laughs)
4: It's like, like hollows on July
1: yeah. <laughs> twenty-first, two thousand seven. Yeah, we have eighty-eight days left until until the movie. And if you um, want to spend that weekend with the very nucleus of the *Harry Potter* fandom, then you need to be in Florida. You also need to get your tickets pretty fast because in about we we had said on the website that um, from after the two thousand mark, we weren't offering any. Um, Break any of like the the ticket wouldn't come with brunch on Sunday, but I think we've managed to include more people. But I think we only have 300 of those tickets left. So yeah, don't wait, don't wait. And everybody's asking about what we're gonna do with the what we're gonna do with screening. What we do? We are working on it. We are working on it as much as we can possibly be working on it. We 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 will get it figured out. Don't worry, guys. But um, yeah, it's gonna be special. Cheryl's gonna be there.
4: I am. Cheryl, you're going to be there? I'm going to be there for Lit Day and then stay hey, out yeah. That'll be fun. Yes. Cheryl. yes. I'm excited. Here. I haven't been to the Wizarding World yet.
0: So. I know. I'm it's- behind all of you. How could you yeah. possibly not been to the Wizarding World? Get off the show. How <laughs> dare you? <laughs> I'm going to Orlando
1: right now. That's going to be great because it'll be the private event, and you'll enjoy it like proper. You know. I hope so. Yeah. Oh, it's going awesome. to be awesome. It's just so fluffy. It's so. Is this from <laughs> Despicable Me? <laughs> <laughs> don't they do? Don't the little? Don't the yeah, little? Don't little. little? Yeah. She goes. It's just
0: so fluffy. So fluffy.
1: <laughs> that was a great movie. <laughs> it's awesome. That fun. was a great movie. Um. But yeah, LeakyCon, um, we've got lots of announcements coming. we we're, we're um, it's it's so funny. Our biggest announcements are going to come after the damn thing sold out. Like I know it, you know. But what are you gonna do? So, so get your tickets, get your tickets, cause they're gonna go. We're probably gonna.
0: Tickets, go. everybody.
1: Yeah, my bet is at the end of May. We'll see. The end of tickets. That's my bet?
0: All right. Well, Cheryl, guess what? Because you're our guest, you get to pick the password. Because we, we're on Potter Watch here, so we need a password to end the show with. So, do you have a password? Yes, it is Kerfuffle. Oh no no no! Tell Wait, no, ah, no ah, gosh, i no. Ruined it, Cheryl. You Jeez. haven't gone to the park. All you right. passed wrong. Oh. Uh, now, now you okay, need a new everything. one. Now you need a new one. <laughs> oh, it's the end of the show, you guys. Uh, oh. totally unexpected and unplanned. <laughs> <laughs> well, until next time. Keep twiddling those dials.
4: The next password is kerfuffle.
1: Keep each other safe.
0: Keep faith. <laughs> Good
1: night.
2: Good night. How
1: <laughs> well, you know, so. Good
2: stuff.
3: Mister W three. I confess My myself disappointed.
0: Now, if you don't mind,
2: I'm going to bed.
0: Great stuff. No wonder. Look at the time. We've been here nearly four hours. Spooky how the time flies when one's having fun.